Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Theo Narduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. How are you? What, if anything, is new? Aha! Hi, Thea. (laughs) (laughs) Challenge. I'll tell you what I could tell you. Um, I've saved Christmas, so there is a caveat. (laughs) I I know it's a bit early. I haven't saved it in any very real sense, but I've got the perfect Christmas present to okay. give to the book lover in your life or just anyone it's called powells by powells and it's a fragrance ah. or scent if you're being very grand i was going to make you guess what it was but that seemed a bit mean it has notes of wood violet and biblical which i think is the smell you get from old books it is it's an actual it's an actual word i know it's yeah it's like a smell of old of old books exactly of petrichor so it kind of it yeah. must share that ichor greek root mustn't it with is that yes, the liquid that, that means, runs in yes, the veins it does of the mean liquid, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It does, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to hear a description of it? I'd love to hear a description of it. <laughs> you couldn't really say no, could you? But <laughs> No, uh, no, I think we're fine, thanks. <laughs> I'll read you a description of it. Like the crimson rhododendrons in Rebecca, the heady fragrance of old paper creates an atmosphere ripe with mood and possibility. Invoking a labyrinth of books, secret libraries, ancient scrolls and cognac swilled by philosopher kings no less. Powells by Powells delivers the wearer to a place of wonder, discovery and magic heretofore only known in literature. Is is this, That's not as bad. they say, for real? <laughs> it is for real. You, I've, I've, I've had a look. There is an actual product that you can buy. But my caveat in that I haven't really saved Christmas is that it is, of course, inevitably uh, sold out. Of course it is. So there is, uh, there's none left. Though I think you can get it in January, which might defeat the point. There's a brilliant um, addendum to it. It says how to wear, which, I mean... <laughs> you think it would be self-explanatory. You, you would think that. But it says, this scent contains the lives of countless heroes and heroines. Apply to the pulse points when seeking sensory succor or a brush with immortality. Oh, it is it's quite a heady sell, that. It is, isn't it? It sounds wonderful. It's apparently a, a a wonderful bookshop in Portland, Oregon. It is. I have been there. It's ah, amazing. I, I think it's I it. think it's the biggest in the world or something. I have a funny feeling it's been renovated since I was last there, uh, which was, oh God, like six years ago, I think. Um, but it's block after block of books and they were all just, it was, it was a heaven. I don't Can- remember the smell. That's what I was about to ask. What <laughs> did it smell like? Ask. I suspect it smelled a lot of uh, biblical. Well, uh, there you and, go. And, and violets. And, and wood. And wood. <laughs> so there you have it. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Lucy. That's all of us sorted uh, for Christmas. Coming up on this week's show, Wesley Stace will be filling us in on the real James Bond, a celebrated 20th century ornithologist whose name was poached for the purposes of spy fiction. We'll also have a clip from an interview with Douglas Stewart, the author of this year's Booker Prize winning novel, Shuggy Bain. But before that, Lucy, we are looking into a new series of films by the British filmmaker, Steve McQueen. 
Yes, beginning with the trial of the Mangrove Nine, which, although it was a legal and social landmark, is relatively little known. And the story is one that the artist and filmmaker Steve McQueen has brought to the TV as part of his new series, Small Axe, for the BBC. The author and broadcaster Colin Grant, whose most recent book is Homecoming, Voices of the Windrush Generation, has written about it for us, and we're delighted that he's here to talk about it with us today. Colin, many thanks for joining us. Thank you. First of all, Colin, can you tell us about The Mangrove Nine? What happened and why was it important? Well, the film is set in the beginning of 1968. Uh, this is the year in which Enoch Powell delivers his infamous Rivers of Blood speech. And a few weeks before, a West Indian called Frank Critchlow opens a restaurant called Mangrove in Notting Hill, along with some mates. He's had an establishment before called The Rio, but that was shut down. The Rio was famous for having clients like Christine Keeler. So it's a bit of a risque affair, but this new establishment is gonna be clean, as Frank Critchlow says. He's not gonna open himself to, to any charges that he's not behaving in an appropriate fashion, but he hasn't reckoned for the unwarranted attention of a policeman called PC Pulley, who um, harasses him and raids the restaurant on a number of occasions for no good real reason. So much so that his energy, the energy of the manager, Frank Krishler, begins to sap, it begins to break, and his friends, including C.L.R. James and dark as how, get together and they say, we will have a demonstration to voice our solidarity and support. They have a, a march. Uh, the march is 150 people on the road and it's met by 300 policemen. And there is some violence that ensues and then they are brought to trial, accused of violence, riot and affray. And in that court case at the Old Bailey, um, they are put on trial for 11 long weeks. So in a way, this is a kind of pivotal moment in the place of Caribbean people in this country. And things are going to change thereafter, whether they are found guilty or innocent. And a, a pivotal moment as well, because isn't this sort of taken as, as the first time that the the police force is, is held to account or the first time that it is suggested that there is such a thing as institutional racism in the police force? Yes, I mean, I was brought up in the 60s myself in a little town called Luton. And there was always this sense that the British had this great propaganda which they managed to convince people of. That was the idea of British fair play. But almost every West Indian or Caribbean person I knew reckoned that there was things wrong with the police force, that they were racist, that they did target black people and abuse black people. So this was, as you say, they are a real moment of reckoning that not only now with West Indians and migrants recognise the wrongness of some members of the police force, but the population as a whole. And also it's important to say that the, the, the charges that they were acquitted, weren't they? Yeah, so there were nine altogether, uh, five of them, including Frank Critchlow and Althea Jones from the British Black Panther movement and Darkest Howe, Five of them were acquitted of all charges. Four of them were not acquitted of the lesser charge of affray. But by and large, this was a victory for common sense and a victory for the fact that these people have been wrongly targeted and wrongly put on trial. Uh-huh. And how does Steve McQueen uh, tell the story? How does he present it? Well, I think he's enamoured of the period and of the people involved. It's a very beautiful looking film, very rich film. In a way, it's kind of gloss well, it could be matte, in my, in my own preference, I would prefer it to be more matte, but he has managed to convey the, the atmosphere of the times really, really well. The, this is a, a derelict part of London. It's the neglected part of London. This is before the gentrifiers move in. Uh, there's corrugated iron everywhere. There are children rummaging in bricks on broken up pavements. Um, there is graffiti on the walls saying, keep Britain white or Enoch Powell for Prime Minister. Sometimes when you watch these period films, it's almost as if the actors are in fancy, in fancy dress, but these people really inhabit the costumes and the times. So they moved as people moved in the times. And he focuses on this small group of people. In, in fact, they're trying to create a kind of community, a sort of safe place 
for West Indians or Caribbean people. And it conjures the, the, the times in terms of the, way, the look of the place, but also the sound. The, the sound of reggae is very sort of subtly uh, coursing through many, many of the scenes. Uh, but also the humor, what people often forget, I think, is that there was a lot of liveliness that came with the Caribbean people coming to this country and he's able to capture their mischief and their humor, so much so that even in the course of the opening of this restaurant, suddenly people are breaking out into Calypso songs. Uh, they're liming, as we say in the Caribbean, they're just hanging out, but they're enjoying themselves and, and they recognize that food is entertainment and coming together is a, is a moment to entertain themselves. So he catches that kind of excitement of people who are not gonna be beaten up or beaten down by the forces arrayed against them because they all have their own sense of individuality. And you say in the piece that, that all, all the films, in fact, despite some uh, this very difficult subject matter, and there's no, there's no uh, flinching before the violence and the injustice of, of what happens, but you say that all the films are shot through with joy. Yeah, and I think sometimes we lose sight of that. I mean, often the way that Caribbean life has been depicted in our culture is one where we are either the victims or the perpetrators. And if we're victims, we're the victims of great transgressions and are to be pitied. Or we are muggers, uh, burglars, rioters. And what McQueen does is, is, is in a way capture people as a kind of single unit. These people actually don't stray much beyond their few streets and they hang out together and they're comfortable in each other's presence so that they can rib each other, they can laugh with each other, they can critique each other and they can argue with each other, but it's done with this great sense of joy and a joie de vivre that permeates mm. all of the films actually. And um, was the mangrove a particular target, do you think, because not just um, Caribbean, West Indian people, but because also there were there, there black intellectuals and activists and artists gathered there. Do you think that was why it was a particular target as well? Yeah, I think sometimes we lose sense of the fact that one of the bigger problems that we have in this country is not necessarily to do with race, it's to do with class. And there's a sense that the black people who hang out at this establishment including Darkest Howard and other intellectuals, are kind of a class above the working class policemen who are rather ill-educated and uh, annoyed and feel almost patronized by the presence of these black people who are getting on in life, maybe having much more joy and much more potential to fulfill their lives than these working class policemen. And what's kind of clear is that there is this hatred that comes through, especially from this PC pulley, but I think it's informed by the, the culture at large. There was this great antipathy I felt towards Caribbean people when I was growing up in the 60s in Luton. And you sense that there's this resentment which is not built on anything other than fear. There's this fear that actually these black people are gonna usurp the, the white working class people. And that comes through in the, uh, the great antipathy and the violence displayed by PC Pulley and some of his colleagues. Then, then if we move on to the second film in the series, Lovers Rock, this is totally different, isn't it? In in the story and the style and the tone. Yeah, no, I, I love Lovers Rock. I mean, I love mm. all of the films actually. And in this particular film, which is set right at the beginning of the eighties, it's focusing on this period of music called Lovers Rock, which is kind of British, kind of a British take on reggae in a way, but it's all very slow. I mean, it reminded me of my father who, who was walked just faster than slow. <laughs> it's the kind of music that you often would hear in, I don't know, a nightclub at the end of the evening. But with this kind of music, it's played all the way through the evening. And so it's kind of slow, meditative, but very relaxed. People are smoking a lot of mar marijuana, but they're enjoying themselves and they're singing along. And it's a sense that they are hearing themselves in the music almost for the first time. And it's very beautifully shot. People are dressed up to the nines. These are sometimes, these are Christian girls who are um, absconding from church and they've gone down to the dance hall to this blues party. And you have all these men who are kind of clinging to the wall with their drinks, nursing their drinks, maybe smoking a spliff, waiting for an opportunity to choose someone to dance with. And the film is shot in this very slow, reflective way, lingering way, loving way, and a joyous way. So the music captures the sense of their abandon almost. 
And I found it very, very affecting. It was almost as if you were immersed in the film yourself, almost as if you were actually at the dance, at the blues party yourself. It, it did feel, it, 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 as you say, the slowness of the music really does permeate the, the film itself. So there's a slow, kind of tantalizingly slow quality to the film itself. It develops a bit like a short story, I think. I know, I know it was co-written by the British Jamaican writer, Courtney Newland, and it does feel, um, for want of a better word, it does feel very writerly. Yes, it does, although there's not a lot of language because some of the times the um, songs play out in full. You know, you have that song, mm. Silly Games, it's played in its three and a half minutes and then they rewind and, and start playing it again. Um, but actually, it is a very literary film in that the language, I think, is when it's used, although it's spare, it's just so, it just captures the, the, the language and the, and this kind of street speak of the time. I think Courtney Newland's done a very, very good job in that regard. But also it captures some of the awkwardness of being a young adult, um, awkwardness around the language of love, around the language of flirtation. And there is a kind of sinister element to it as well with at least one or two of the characters who uh, are more interested in, in sex than they are in, interested in courting someone. Um, and there's a, there's a kind of edge to it, which I really liked as well, because in the course of the film, although it's slow, it does build towards the kind of crescendo in terms of the music where mm. it becomes almost like a kind of punk music at the end where young men essentially are left on the dance floor thrashing around, throwing themselves at each other in this kind of wild abandon that you might find at the end of an evening when people are fearing that this is their last chance to express themselves. I was just going to say it's like a mosh pit. It changes from the from that beautiful, there is that beautiful sing-along, as you say, to Silly Games, which... Um, there's that w wonderful moment, which again, he holds for a long time when everyone is singing along to Silly Games and the DJ turns the music off. So it's just the people singing. And he does not it He does it not just for a line, but for quite a lot of the song. And it's all the more impressive because that's an incredibly difficult song to sing because it's got that notorious top note on it, which I think is a high C. And they've got one. I was thinking that's that's really for a set of random people at a party, they are really very good singers because they've got one <laughs> woman who can just nail the top note every time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, and I always find myself, even though I can't sing, singing along because it did, uh, did, it did evoke that time, I think, very, very well of the optimism that you have as a young person, that even though things may be stacked against you, you're still going to push on through and songs like that helped you. But also I felt that the, it captured really well the women Sometimes um, in mm. some of the other films, women aren't so well captured. But in this particular film, which I think is driven by the character Martha, you have this young Cinderella type person who's escaping from the privations of her Christian household to have a good time for once. But Saucer, she's a woman who can hold her floor with any uh, daring man who might want to transgress and, and um, be too macho in her company, but also She's going to stand up for her sisters when she feels that they may be threatened by some of these men whose advances have been rejected. Mm. So you get, you get that sense that although it's a loving atmosphere, it's also one where people have a very strong sense of themselves and they're not going to be intimidated by anybody. Yeah, yeah there's another sense of solidarity, isn't it? Um, and in the third film you've seen, which hasn't actually been out on the TV yet, uh, is Red, White and Blue. And that, that also deals with the police, doesn't it? Yes, and it's a very difficult film to make, but I think it was very well done, also an ambitious film to make, because it does capture that sense in the early 80s now, with the, as you, as you might imagine, the second generation, or even the third generation of Caribbean people after the great Windrush pioneers had arrived. It's capturing that moment when you're going to stick and stay now and be part of the society in which you find yourselves. And that means, where possible, breaching the bastions of civilization breaching the bastions of white British rule and joining institutions like the, like the police. And that film though starts off in a very strange way. It's a film focusing on a young boy called Leroy Logan, who has a 10 or 11 year old boy in his school uniform. And the first scene is him waiting for his father to come and pick him up outside of the school in his school uniform. Two policemen come along and frisk him and challenge him because they suspect that someone like him has been responsible for some burglaries. The boy's father comes and intervenes and gives the boy a real talking to in the car on the way back to their home to say, never 
let me catch you bringing a policeman into my yard, into my home. There's this great suspicion of the police, which many of the people that I grew up with also felt that they're not for you, they're against you, and they will do you harm. And so it's very strange then in the course of the film that the young boy now becomes a young man and decides to give up his career as a scientist. He's got a PhD, he's a forensic scientist. He's gonna give up that career to become a beat policeman with a metropolitan police force. His father, Ken, is also abused later on in the film by the police and abused so badly that he ends up being hospitalized. He's beaten up so badly. And it is strange to me watching the film at that moment, the boy, the young man now, makes the decision to join the police force. So it's a very strange decision to, to recognize that you're part of a group of people who are being targeted and abused by the police to then want to join the police force itself. It's a very brave thing to do and a very necessary thing to do. Steve McQueen catches that dilemma very, very well. Oh, I wanted to ask about the broader context of these films. Um, I was reading a recent interview with Steve McQueen by the historian David Olusoga. Um, and Olusoga says, small acts raises, uh, raises difficult questions, not just about the history of British racism. It also stands as an indictment of the UK film and television industry and its failure to value black stories and harness black talent. Um, and he goes on and he says, after this, and by this, I think he, he means 2020 more widely, uh, the kind of the shift in political, social consciousness that we've seen in many societies, I think, this year in the wake of George Floyd and so on. He says, there are no viable excuses now for marginalizing black stories and black voices. Did you, watching these films, Colin, did, you, did these films elicit the same kind of, at last, uh, reaction in you when you were watching them? Or did, did you see them in the same way as a turning point? Or are you more... No, no, I didn't. I understand what Olusuga is saying because, and in the past there have been films, um, but sometimes they haven't been scripted by people who know much about the culture that they're putting onto the screen. But you know, there have been great films in the past. I mean, during the great period of play for today on BBC television, there was a, a number of films by Horace Ove, a great Trinidadian-born filmmaker, who uh, made a film actually about a Black Panther incident went, that went wrong with the, um, the Siege of Spaghetti House. Um, and there the have been great comedies um, like the Desmonds in the past. But I think what Olusuga is, is probably referring to is that we hope now that there'll be more opportunities for films like Queen's films to come through. Because although there have been films and documentaries and series in the past, often you might find that there'll be a kind of moment when black filmmakers, black films seem to be in vogue and then there'll be a dearth of 10 years before they get another crack at the whip, as it were. And this time I hope, and maybe Olusuka hopes that there's going to be now a great rolling interest of Caribbean life in this country, which will encourage filmmakers and producers and commissioners, no matter what color they are, to recognize that there's a great opportunity now to show how the culture has evolved and developed and to show how it has been enriched by people like Steve McQueen, but also by Horace Ove and others in the past. Finally, Colin, I'm afraid um, this will have to be the last question, though of course we could and would like to carry on talking about this. I just wanted uh, to know how you see Small Acts. Do you see it as an integral part of McQueen's, frankly, fairly amazing body of work, or do you see this as a departure? How would you situate it within his work? Well, in a way, I interviewed Steve McQueen for his show at Tate modern a few months ago before lockdown happened. And I was struck there myself by how strong the work is, especially as it pertains to reflecting black life. And I know that he doesn't want to be called a black director or black artist, but there's something about his understanding of Caribbean life in this culture that comes through and fits with his view, his eye and his abilities to translate what he's seen onto the screen really, really well. So I think he's found the perfect subject and found a way of giving voice and giving sight to that perfect subject in the most compelling, compassionate and thrilling way. So I think it's a high mark personally of Steve McQueen's career thus far. Although he's articulating some very harsh moments in our culture, 
he's saying by the end that all of we are part of this culture. As you say in Jamaica, all of we are one. Um, well, many thanks for, for talking to us so eloquently about it, Colin. Thank you. Thanks very much, Lucy. Thanks, Thea. Still to come on the show, a clip from our interview with Douglas Stewart, the author of Sugar Bane, this year's Booker Prize winning novel, and the story of the real James Bond, a man whose name is possibly the least interesting thing about him. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. And before we get to the ornithologist James Bond and the Booker Prize-winning Shuggy Bain, there's a new book we'd like to tell you about. Throughout his life, Charles Rosen combined formidable intelligence with immense skill as a concert pianist. He began studying at Juilliard at age seven and went on to inspire a generation of scholars to combine history, aesthetics and score analysis in what became known as new musicology. The Joy of Playing, The Joy of Thinking, out now from Harvard University Press, presents a masterclass for music lovers. In interviews originally conducted and published in French, Rosen's friend Catherine Temerson asks carefully crafted questions to elicit his insights on the evolution of music, not to mention painting, theatre, science and modernism, because as well as being a concert pianist, Rosen was also a professor of music and social thought at the University of Chicago. Rosen touches on the usefulness of aesthetic reflection, the pleasure of overcoming stage fright, and the drama of conquering a technically difficult passage. He tells vivid stories about composers from Chopin and Wagner to Stravinsky and Eliot Carter. From Temerson's questions and Rosen's responses arise conundrums both practical and metaphysical. Is it possible to understand a work without analysing it? Does music exist if it isn't played? You can get a copy of The Joy of Playing, The Joy of Thinking with 30% off at www.hup.harvard.edu if you enter the code HOLIDAY20 at the checkout until the end of December. Talking of vivid stories and carefully crafted questions, our fiction editor Toby Lishtig has been to meet in a safe, socially distanced kind of way, Douglas Stewart, the author of this year's Booker Prize winning novel, Shuggy Bane, which unfolds in Glasgow over the course of the 1980s, when industry and morale were in decline and addiction and other means of escape on the rise. 
The work has been described as a Thomas Hardy novel set in Glasgow, and Toby began by asking him about that comparison. I don't know if it's a Thomas Hardy novel as much as uh, one of the biggest influences on my writing has certainly been Thomas Hardy. Um, I wanted to look at something that swept across Glasgow. It's a love story between mother and son uh, as they're struggling to survive in 1980s Glasgow as the city is sinking into 26% unemployment all around them. Uh, but Agnes Bain, who is the mother of the family, is a bright, beautiful, proud, generous mother. But after she's cruelly abandoned by her husband, she begins to descend into addiction and alcoholism. And it's her youngest son, Shuggy, who stays by her side the longest and loves his mother and tries to save her from her from her fate. And I think it's that question of fate and doom and also how uh, in Hardy's work, Tess is sort of uh, formed and passed and used by the, the, the things that happen to her. Um, Agnes almost is too. She's kind of tossed around in in the winds of the time, and uh, we, we it sort of echoes some of what I feel about Tess. Yeah. So these sort of these marginal figures, aren't they? Who are central to your narrative, and Shuggy himself feels quite sort of different and other and marginal within within his own community. And I guess Agnes as a woman is is marginalised in this very patriarchal society, but also because of her own struggles to kind of keep her life in order, she is also on the kind of periphery of things. That's right. I mean, it, here's a mother, like many mothers in the 80s, who had so much ambition and dreams and wants, and society would give her nowhere to put them um, as a working class woman. Uh, and so at the first half of the book, we almost see her as being too much. She's seen by the character around her as being too much, almost exhausting. Uh, but actually, she's not too much. It's just the world around her is not enough. <laughs> Um, and Shuggy as well, as you say, has, is dealing with his own sort of form of uh, isolation because he's very quickly deemed no right by the people around him, which is a very Glaswegian blunt way of saying, what's wrong with you? Why are you like this? Uh, but he is an effeminate little boy. He's precocious because his entire universe is his mother. So he's around, you know, his, he learns everything through her. Um, and he's othered very quickly by the boys and the men around him. I mean, and you talk about fate. I mean, it's interesting because uh, although we follow Shuggy through his childhood um, into, into his early adolescence in this novel, there's actually a prologue, isn't there? A short prologue uh, mm. in the beginning in which we see the teenage Shuggy. Obviously, something's gone badly wrong. He's living alone in a bedsit. He's being taken advantage of um, by his boss, a delicatessen, and he's being sort of perved on by this creepy fellow guest. And he's, he's very much, you can see, he's a victim. But already at this stage, you can see this resilience. It's a kind of polite resilience, but it's definitely a resilience. And I just wonder what, what, to what extent you think this is a novel about surviving? I think it's absolutely a novel about surviving. And actually Shuggy, opening with the question of Shuggy and his own fate, I wanted to frame then Agnes's choices and what she does throughout the book. And all of the things that Agnes does and Shuggy does, and even uh, halfway through the book, we see that Agnes's mother had to make some very difficult choices about surviving, um, is really looking at when the chips are down or when things are hard, people do what they can to get by. And there's a dignity in that, although sometimes it's difficult to look at or maybe to process if you've never been in that situation yourself. None of us know what we would do until we're sort of faced with the headwinds or the troubles that, that the Bain family face. Um, but I also wanted to show Shuggy in that situation because then it, I hoped it increased his compassion for his mother as we watch her go through her journey throughout the book. Um, because I think the big one, hopefully one of the themes in the book is empathy as well and how the characters relate to each other. Hope is central to the book, but it's not always a big sort of shining horizon or a big, sometimes in literature, it's a very glowing thing in the far distance. And I think that hope for many people who are maybe struggling or having a tough time is just the ability to get up every single day and face another day and get up again the next day and face another day and keep going. That is a hope. It's a it's a small glimmer of hope, but, uh, but it's a very powerful thing. Well, I think we can all relate to that to one degree or another. I have to say that's the one thing that, that makes it sound less like Thomas Hardy um, <laughs> is, is the hope actually, because I do find that Thomas Hardy, sometimes there isn't much hope in there. He's talking very movingly about, you know, the hope of just getting up the next day and getting on with it, isn't he? Exactly. It's true. You don't really go to Thomas Hardy for hope. Um, that was Douglas Stewart, the author of this year's Booker Prize winning novel, Shuggy Bane, talking to the TLS's fiction editor, Toby Lishtig. The full episode will be out tomorrow morning. So if you haven't subscribed to the TLS podcast already, do it today 
and the episode will be automatically downloaded. Now, from such a distinctive name as Shuggy Bane, we turn to James Bond, a name chosen for the charismatic adventurous spy by his creator, Ian Fleming, precisely because it seemed so dull and forgettable. At the opposite end of the scale, Fleming said, from the kind of peregrine Carruthers whom one meets in this type of fiction. It seems odd then that given Fleming had such a clear sense of the kind of name he wanted for his protagonist, masculine but unromantic are other adjectives he ascribed to the name, it seems strange that he wasn't able to come up with it himself. Instead, he had to pinch someone else's name. Here to tell us that story is Wesley Stace, who's reviewed a book by Jim Wright called The Real James Bond in this week's TLS. Hello, Wesley. Hello. The title of the book, especially the subtitle, promises an awful lot, really, doesn't it? I mean, The Real <laughs> James Bond, a true story of identity theft, avian intrigue and Ian Fleming. Yes, I mean, it's, it's a little over-egged on the identity theft because it isn't really even a case of identity theft, except that James Bond's name, the name for the spy, was taken from the name of uh, Jim Bond, James, who was called Jim Bond, who was a well-known ornithologist whose work, the birds of the, I forget the exact name, but the birds of the Caribbean. Of the West Indies. West Indies. The, birds of, the birds of the West Indies. Um, was a favourite of Ian Fleming and Ian Fleming's wife at their famous Golden Eye retreat. But it says a true story of identity theft, slightly over-egged, avian intrigue, which it definitely is a story of, and Ian Fleming. And there's one pivotal moment when the Bonds, being Jim and his wife Mary, well, they called on Fleming completely unannounced uh, at Golden Eye, and bizarrely, the Canadian Broadcasting Company were filming the most common documentary of Fleming talking about James Bond that you see if you check on YouTube. And that was the day the Bonds were there. Fleming met them with a, a slightly worried, uh, are you going to sue me or something? Because they would had a little correspondence in the past. And we should say, I mean, this... Uh, as you say, identity theft is, is rather over-egging it, but so let's say this second identity, this second James Bond, how did that impact on or complicate the life of the first James Bond? I mean, considering that he was in his 50s by the time the first novel came out. Well, th this is fascinating because the real James Bond, the ornithologist, uh, didn't like the connection whatsoever, would have happily done without it, was a rather private man anyway. And the major thing getting in the way of that was his rather more ambitious wife, Mary Bond, who wanted to make as much of it as possible, ended up publishing three books on the subject. The first of which was published by Fleming's publisher with a pastiche, you know, James Bond spy thriller cover about the real James Bond. So she made as much of it as she could. To him, it was a major distraction. He didn't like getting the phone calls saying, will you come as extra publicity for the, um, you know, premiere of this movie at this local Philadelphia, you know, cinema house. I was just going to say, um, and also didn't Jim Bond, the ornithologist, didn't he make a point of saying to Ian Fleming, I don't read the books. I haven't read any yes. when they met. Yes, yes. He, uh, Mary Bond was apparently the reader of, uh, of of Fleming's thrillers rather than Jim who wasn't impressed and, and Fleming um, sympathized with him for that. But um, they'd first become aware of it before the first movie, I think, but after many of the books, obviously, when there was a rather strange review of uh, Bond's seminal bird book in the Sunday Times. And it's a review that caught their attention because of its odd jokey tone and it's now thought but not certain that that review was written by Ian Fleming who found the link quite amusing. Mary Bond then got in touch with Fleming and they're rather pointed letters in which she kind of jokingly accuses him of stealing, and this is where it gets interesting, not only the name but some of her husband's adventures and this is where the book is actually really very good because it makes the reader aware of the many links between twitching and spying. 
people turning up in politically sensitive places with binoculars pretending to look for birds. And he very, <laughs> and Jim Wright, the author of the book, you know, really tr goes for broke on the link between those two things, even positing that Jim Bond himself might have been a spy, which kind of turns out not to be true. But the links between ornithology and spying are legion. Is that where the avian intrigue of the subtitle comes from? That, I was hoping for like a, 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 a pigeon with a message or something. <laughs> that was all part of it too, I'm sure. But no, that is the that is the avian intrigue. Well, I mean, you can sort of understand why someone who, who has, you know, made their career being an incredibly serious scientist might be reluctant to give this this other sort of story much airtime. <laughs> you can see why he would consider it a bit of a a distracting totally. coincidence. And that sort of persists today, um, really. You know this from, from personal experience. <laughs> well, I mean, the reason that I came across this book is strange. I was uh, going for a walk with my father-in-law-to-be. So my wife, Abby, was a new girlfriend of mine at the time. And uh, we were taking a, the dogs for a walk in Maine. And he said, well, of course, you know, did you know about the family link with, um, with James Bond? And I said, not at all. And this is the story he told me, that Fleming had met a man on a plane and had said to that man, I mean, you know, I'm in Fleming, what do you, what's your name? And the man said, my name is Bond, James Bond. And... Fleming had said, not the author of the, of the book of- Birds Caribbean, of the West yeah, Indies, but, published in 1936. Of, yeah, and, 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 and James, Jim Bond said, yes, the very man. And, you know, end of story. And that's how they met. And Ian Fleming stole the name because he needed a dull name that wasn't Peregrine Carruthers or whatever spies were called back then. And that's the family story. Now that family story is entirely wrong, as this book shows. But at the end of the walk, I came back to the house and I said to Abby, do you know any of this? And she said, oh, maybe I vaguely remember. I went, this must be a load of rubbish. And so I looked it up online. And I mean, I was amazed to find that, although that story itself, Bond, James Bond, you can see how that became a good family story. But although that story wasn't necessarily true that, you know, this Jim Bond they were related to, great uncle, was, you know, the known source for the name James Bond. And I mean, also in their family is, is the Brooklyn Bridge, which my wife's great, great, great grandfather designed, you know, and built the John Roebling and Washington Roebling and Emily Roebling are all part of her family. But I mean, you know, suddenly I found out I'm related to James Bond. That's much more exciting even than the Brooklyn Bridge. But the odd thing was their family wasn't particularly interested in it. And I think that that is an inherited attitude uh, from the fact that Jim Bond himself found it, you know, the connection you know, popular culture nowadays is far more revered by people generally than it was back then, I think, in the 50s and 60s. And those people just weren't particularly interested in it. And I, I'm afraid to say that I believe that the family found Mary Bond's maneuvers, which continued after her husband's death, rather embarrassing. That all didn't quite find a place in the review because, you know, the, the, uh, the book isn't about me, but I was, uh, it, it was, it was very intriguing to, to read a little more about it. And it's a very handsome volume with some fantastic illustrations in it. And one of the great things is that uh, uh, Jim Bond's great influence in his life was Carol Tyson, who was the family painter. He published a very famous portfolio of bird paintings called the Birds of Mount Desert Island in Maine, where we were walking the dogs, coincidentally. And that portfolio has remained a very um, much desired thing because Martha Stewart, of whom you all know, became a keen collector of Carol Tyson's works. What he, Carol Tyson also did was paint portraits. And in the book, it's mentioned that he painted the portrait of, I'll just read the little bit here, if you like. Uh, the largest influence on young Jim Bond was likely his uncle artist, Carol Sargent Tyson. Tyson studied art, blah, blah, blah. And then in Europe, where his friends included Mary Cassatt and Claude Monet, he began to collect their works as well as other impressionist paintings. He was a, 
excellent painter and it has a huge painting collection that's now in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Tyson's cousin was the renowned portraitist John Singer Sargent and Tyson tried his hands at portraits as well. In 1912, he painted Helen Roebling, granddaughter of the builder of the Brooklyn Bridge. Artist and subject fell in love and got married. And that painting, is above my fireplace now because it was a wedding present. That particular painting of Helen Roebling was a wedding present from my father-in-law to my wife and I when we got married. Well, I mean, you can see, given um, all of the, the kind of art history uh, narrative in this, you can you can quite appreciate why the Fleming connection might pale in comparison and just not actually be that interesting. It's, it's just a sort of a hook to hang a book on, I suppose. It sounds a bit like the book, I suppose what I'm saying is that it sounds a bit like the book has a bit of an identity crisis of its own going on. You, you, you describe it as by turns a capsule portrait of Philadelphia high society at the turn of the last century, a bibliographical thriller and an exploration of the historically close ties between birders and spooks, uh, even unmasking a surprising villain. So we've had a bit of that. It just sounds like an incredibly interesting and rich life brimming with stories of which this, this, this Fleming one is is a minor note, I suppose. Well, he, this is, I mean, with Christmas coming up, I'd say that one could describe this book without doing it any injustice as a terrific stocking stuffer. It is not packed with words and the print is relatively large and there's a lot to talk about, but that includes, you know, spying, ornithology. I mean, I had no idea when people said they went out collecting birds. I, in my naivety, had no idea that meant they just went out killing them and then skinned them and stuffed them in the afternoon or whatever they did. I wouldn't say the book has an identity crisis, but I would say it's very, it's it covers a lot of ground in a short area, ending with the fantastic punchline that on that day that um, they met in Goldeneye to uh, memorialize that day, uh, Ian Fleming gave a copy of his new book, which I think was for your eyes only. And he dedicated it, you know, with the date and what a great day this was. And, you know, something about identity theft maybe. And it's really the ultimate in, in secondhand book terms, the ultimate presentation copy of for your eyes only, you know, that a book collector could possibly imagine or desire written from the author to the fictional namesake and namer of James Bond. And, um, just after Jim Bond died, I mean, basically his stuff was given to the Philadelphia Free Library and his ex-wife went and stole the book. She stole the book and put it up for auction and, you know, got a number of thousand dollars for it. Although the only satisfying fact about that awful story is that about 20 years later, it sold for about a million times that amount of dollars. And obviously she'd passed it on before then, but, uh, I think she was a little bit, she's a little bit of a villain in the book, I would say. He's too polite to say so, but I say so quite plainly in my review. Isn't there also, just to complicate matters even further, do you mention that in, sorry, I can't remember which Bond film it is, it's a Pierce Brosnan one. Oh, yeah. Um, go on, you, you, you tell it because you, you know it so well. Okay, well, this is, this is great. So you can imagine that in my house, we have a few copies of the book. The first edition is quite rare now, but there have been subsequent editions which also look nice. So we were watching The World Is Not Enough. I think I don't have the review in front of me, but I think it's The World Is Not Enough. It's a Pierce Brosnan impersonation of James Bond in that movie. And Pierce Brosnan is pretending to be an ornithologist, which of course means that he can say, my name's James, you know, I'm only here for the birds. And in the middle of when he is, I think, wooing Halle Berry or just about to see Halle Berry as Domino for the first time, he picks up a book off the table and it is James Bond's book of Caribbean birds. It's the very edition we have in this house. That drew my eyes in me. Of course, he doesn't say what the book is necessarily. And then I looked closer at the book and, and um, pause the frame and of course James Bond's name is taken out because although those James Bond movies love and in joke having 
the name of the real person whom the fictional James Bond is named after on a book would I think have been a step too far. I think they would have to, the whole thing would have to collapse if they yeah, they'd they'd cancel each other out somehow. End of the James Bond franchise. I think maybe, or, or a wormhole would open and the whole yes. thing would be finished. It would be the singularity. <laughs> Hell of a way to go though. <laughs> Not bad. Mind you, I think the James Bond, I mean, this is what's nice about reading the book. I think the James Bond franchise is all, always in danger of that. I mean, the, the amount of self-reference and it like it, it thrives on that kind of ouroboros of self-reference. Is that how you pronounce that word? I don't even know. I've never tried to say it before. I'm convinced. It, yeah, let's say it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, it just thrives on that kind of self-reference and endless circularity. And it's, it's rather beautiful that they did include that reference in there, in fact. It is, that is a very knowing tribute to, you know, something that has become really an essential part of the James Bond legend and canon, that meeting uh, of uh, Fleming and Bond at Goldeneye is pivotal in the whole origin myth of James Bond now. Well, it sounds like a very interesting story indeed. Uh, Wesley Stace, many thanks for joining us. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for asking me. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Colin Grant and Wesley Stace. A reminder that The Joy of Playing, The Joy of Thinking, interviews with the musician Charles Rosen is out now from Harvard University Press with 30% off if you go to the Harvard University Press website and enter the code HOLIDAY20 before paying. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Lee Meyer. We'll be back next week. But for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 